Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, Representative Dylan Wegela addresses his decision to turn down a state bailout of the former Inkster School District in favor of taking a hard stance against corporate welfare. State Budget Director Chris Harkins is asked if the state should pay down more long-term debt while the budget is still flush. Michigan GOP Rules Chair Mike Hewitt tells us the rules this weekend's convention will operate under, and MERS reporter Samantha Schreiber recaps who was seen and not seen at this weekend's Michigan Democratic Party convention. Now, here's MERS News Editor Kyle Malin and MERS reporter Samantha Schreiber. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. We're going to start off this podcast with our own Samantha Schreiber. She was at the Michigan Democratic Party convention over the weekend at Huntington Place in Detroit. Samantha, was it uh, the crowd pretty big over there this weekend? Yeah. So this is really the first spring spring state convention for the Michigan Democratic Party that was back to completely in person. Uh, in past uh, conventions, especially in 2022, there was still a online virtual voting option. This year did not have that. So the Huntington Place in Detroit was definitely packed. People were back in person um, and just kind of really embodied this uh, this kind of wraparound fruition for Democrats that it's we're the party is kind of in the most part in the post-COVID-19 era. Still wearing right. masks, but back in person. Rough percentage of the number of people wearing masks. Ah, oh, man. I would say less than 5%. All right. So who had the biggest presence at the convention? You know, so I want to kind of answer this question with a story of when I initially walked into the Huntington place right after parking. And, you know, I saw a group of kind of young convention goers. I stop and say hello to some individuals that I knew. And this one person told me, this one young woman, she said that while she was waiting in line to get her convention credentials, somebody in a bright white, red and black Alyssa Slocken t-shirt had asked her, one, do you know who Alyssa Slocken is? Two, would you be open at all to voting for her for the U.S. Senate? Wow. So getting pulled right out of the chute. Right. Right. When you're in line before you even got your credentials to participate in the convention before you walked in. Uh, Alyssa Slocken, her brigade of volunteers that, you know, some of them have been working on her campaign for six years now. Uh, definitely had a really huge presence, a lot of enthusiasm. You kind of saw these handheld towering Alyssa Slocken signs parading throughout the convention halls. And um, and I heard two responses when I would talk to her uh, volunteers about what they want for the future of Alyssa Slocken's political career. On one hand, you have some that are like, I would love for her to run for U.S. Senate, but I hate the idea of losing her as a U.S. rep in my in the district that she represents in um, in Michigan. And then you had another set of volunteers that were like, I want her to, I'm ready, tell me where to go in the state and I'll be there. Wow. So did she make the rounds? Did you see her at different caucuses? Oh, definitely. She was making the rounds. Um, on top of that, actually, during the ceremonial ceremonial remarks from Democratic representatives in U.S. Congress, Alyssa Slocken did say there near the end of her remarks that she is considering a U.S. Uh, Senate run, that she's being very public about this as a consideration. 
uh, but wants to make sure that she'll be able to do well in bigger parts of the state. You know, she obviously represents a lot of rural areas. She wants to know how she does in big cities like Detroit, Grand Rapids, uh, areas that would be completely new territory for her. On top of that, you also had, I would say, you know, I know that we've talked a lot about, you know, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist making a run, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson making a run. Uh, but I would say the two other people that had the second most intense presence, I would say it would be Hill Harper the good doctor American television series actor who's seriously considering a U.S. Senate run. Um, and then Osto Nasser Beydoun, the former chair of the American Arab Chamber of Commerce, uh, who's also seriously considering a run. He had, um, I personally did not see him, but he had volunteers basically putting his literature in every possible space in the Huntington place. Did you hear Hill Harper talk at all? So I personally did not get to catch any of his remarks, but my big focus was talking to uh, individual members of the party to kind of talk to them about policy, to talk to them about this U.S. Senate race. Uh, they described Harper Hill as giving, Hill Harper, I mean, correction, as giving very fiery remarks. Um, a lot of them now learning for the first time that he was considering becoming a candidate. Um, and some individuals actually seemed quite impressed, especially during his visits to the Women's Caucus and the Black Caucus for the Democratic Party. I was surprised when you told me that Governor Gretchen Whitmer was not at the convention. So I did not see her. She did not make any remarks on the convention stage. Uh, this is really kind of my first time seeing Garland Gilchrist kind of roaming around the hallways by himself, jumping to all these caucuses uh, and getting photos with voters. And, you know, it was kind of really unique to see him kind of show off his uh, his presence, uh, his um, solo skills. You were at the 13th Congressional District Caucus, which I believe would be his Congressional District Caucus. Did you see him come there and what kind of reception did he get? Yeah, so he walked in, got a standing ovation. Uh, you know, a lot of people in that in that caucus definitely really love him and have appreciated the work that he's done. Uh, and I would say, and this is something I also included in my reporting, that a unique focus of this convention was the tax proposal, HB 4001. Um, you know, I think this has really been a day where Democrats are trying to showcase that they can deliver on quote unquote kitchen table issues. And so Garland Gilchrist was talking a lot about this tax proposal, uh, talking a lot about expanding the EITC, what it would mean for reducing hunger among, um, among Michigan children, uh, talking about the $180 rebate checks that they're advocating for. Uh, and so it was kind of really unique. This is the first convention that I went to where you saw people zooming in on a bill as opposed to a widespread political topic. Oh, that is strange. What about Jocelyn Benson? Did you see her much? Or Dana Nessel, the attorney general? Dana Nessel did not give remarks on the convention stage. I did not see her. Uh, Jocelyn Benson was also running around quite a bit. Uh, she really has done so well with this brand of being a elections defender, a voter rights, you know, defender. She walked up on stage with Eye of the Tiger playing um, and really just kind of emphasis that she emphasized that she's just getting started when it comes to her election protection goals and when it comes to an administration of elections in the state of Michigan. Did you see Debbie Stabenow there? 
Yes, I did. So Debbie Stamina also spoke on the convention stage and she did kind of talk about, you know, first things first, whatever just happened with this U.S. Senate race, you know, no matter how big that this primary pool is going to be or so far the kind of perspective bench that a lot of reporters are zoomed in on, uh, she wants to ensure that the seat stays blue and ultimately said that even if she, you know, even with the fact that she's not returning to the U.S. Senate after 2024, she is going to be there every step of the way in the back. Senator Mallory McMorrow, you said, uh, was taking a selfie or, or got a picture with U.S. Senator Gary Peters. Yeah. So there was a photo. I'm going to pull it up right now in front of me. So I did see while I was covering the convention that U.S. Senator Gary Peters had uploaded a photo of him talking to Senator State Senator Mallory McMorrow uh, with the caption, great to catch up with Mallory McMorrow at the Michigan Dems convention today. We're going to keep Michigan blue in 2024. Um, there's no state Senate seats that are going to be open in 2024. So I'm a bit curious about what he means by that. That is interesting. Of all the people that he took a picture of at that convention, it was Mallory McMorrow. You know, he is chairing the Senate uh, Democratic uh, Committee again this year. And I don't know, maybe he's trying to recruit her to run or maybe hoping that uh, he can tap into her uh, network of people who have contributed to her. Mallory McMorrow in 2022 really proved just how much of a powerhouse that she can be when it comes to networking Democrats in Michigan with other unique sources from across the country. Um, so I'm a little bit interested to see where things go with that. All right. Any other things that stood out to you here? Yeah, I mean, I think this was a very interesting convention. Obviously, Michigan Democratic Party Chair Lavora Barnes was reelected for her third term. Uh, when they kind of did the vocal approval of her to be reelected as chair, there was no, you know, no loud opposition that had surfaced to challenge her. Now, Cynthia Johnson, the former Detroit representative, uh, she did attempt running against Lavora Barnes, however, did not collect the required number of signatures to become a contender. There was a moment in the very beginning where she had gotten up to kind of cause a bit of a uh, to kind of cause a bit of a demonstration. However, things were quickly calmed down. Uh, but I think overall, this was a very unique convention as in, you know, first thing, the focus on HB 4001, a bill to kind of be a spotlight feature of a convention I found quite interesting. Um, also, I think 2022 was really Democrats ability to showcase that they have their pre-COVID-19 pandemic ground game back, their organizational game, their ability to, you know, no longer be texting people, to, but to actually be knocking on doors and hosting big events. And I think now we just have to ask, you know, will this momentum stick going into 2024? Samantha Shriver, our reporter here at MERS News, with a report from the Democratic Convention. Appreciate the time, Samantha. All right, we're going to bring in now Mike Hewitt, and he is the Rules Committee Chair for the Michigan Republican Party Convention, this coming convention this weekend. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. You have been the chair of this Rules Committee before, and uh, tell our listeners what we can expect as far as different rules coming into this convention. You know, listen, I, I, this is the third time I've been the Rules Chair, to your point. And I've also been the, the chair of the policy committee for the state Republican Party during this last two-year cycle. My term ends on Friday. I'm the third district chair currently. I'm not running for re-election, so that will end that. But 
listen, the big difference is, as, as most folks are know, uh, there's a lot of consternation with voting machines. And so what will be absent from this uh, convention, and it was absent in August, were, were automatic uh, tabulators. Uh, they will not be present. We'll be doing hand counts in each congressional district. So if you were a delegate, you would come through, uh, in my case, it's the third district. You'd come through our lane, fill out a, uh, literally a hand round, handwritten ballot. So you're checking the candidates. Thereafter, we would have delegates that are volunteers that their function would be to count. So each, each district chair would have I'm, I'll have six delegates uh, that are serving as tellers in the third district, as an example. They count it, we report to state party what our numbers were on a congressional district level. And so there is not going to be a voice vote element. I know that Michonne Maddock had uh, suggested something of that sort, but it doesn't sound like that's going to happen. Uh, there is. A, when you have so many candidates running for chair, um, and that's, by the way, that's a great thing, not a bad thing, that we've got that much activity going on. Um, I'm excited about the activity level, but you've also got different ideas. So, you know, with anything, if there's detail, if you get 10 people in the room, you'll probably have 15 different opinions, goes the joke. Um, she wanted, I, by the way, she never directly, we, her and I have not had that conversation. There was a call for some folks to have a credential raise hand count, but the overwhelming majority of the folks wanted a paper document. Um, so if there were a question, the, the ballots could be counted. And you can't do that in a roll call or hand count vote. And by the way, if you happen to be in the bathroom or stretching your legs in the hall, suddenly you miss it, you're not included or you get included twice. There are just enough elements of error that there was not a, a, there was not a majority interest in that path. I see. How many rounds of voting are we going to do? The, the way the rules are set up is that if no candidate achieves 50 plus 1%, then we'll have round two. The top three vote getters will go to round two. If nobody achieves 50 plus one, then the top two voters will go to a third ballot. So we could have three rounds of voting maximum. Yeah, it's possible. I don't know if it's probable, but it's certainly possible. I would predict two rounds, but I don't know beyond that. Danielle? You know, not doing the voice vote and not doing the electronic system, will that affect anything other than just the time it takes to count? Uh, no, and I don't know that it would affect that either, by the way. It takes a long time to, to do this. When you're talking about a few thousand people, that's not like instantaneous. Um, and by the way, on that point, some of the things that I'd heard along the path to arriving at it were some folks wanted uh, to use phone apps. That would have been instantaneous but not everybody has a smartphone. And so there were reasons along the path that eliminated some ideas that, that I think in the future we'll probably get to. I'm just not convinced we're there yet. And like I told, like I told Kyle, the overwhelming majority of the folks that I spoke with wanted something on paper that could be touched, that you can physically count at a later date or a later time in the, in the convention. And so that's the path that we took. And in terms of the rules committee that I chaired, uh, the, the, the support for what we did was overwhelming in that committee. And that committee represented uh, people from every congressional district in Michigan. So it wasn't just me making a decision. When was the rules committee meeting? We had that Saturday morning gone by. 
It was a two and a half hour meeting, highly detailed as you can imagine. Um, but listen, one of the things I, I, I read on social media about folks being angry and this and that, and everyone's waving their fist. And the truth of it is, is that at least with the rules committee and the policy committee that I've been, that I've chaired, they've been a gathering of really respectful people, even in disagreement. They've been very respectful. I've been proud of them and proud to be a part of it. Any other particular change in the rules that you think is important to note? You know, no, not really. I think the two biggest things was how we're going to vote, how we're going to count them, and what do we do with the ballots? I mean, that's really it. And, you know, when I look at a convention total, it's not the state Republican Party's convention, it's the delegates convention. That's how I personally see it. And that's the approach I took. And I think that's the product we have for the delegates. What do you make out of having 11 candidates for state party chair? Uh, Kyle, I think it's exciting. Um, I've met all 11 candidates. Um, I have favorites, but because I'm the rules chair, I did not make an endorsement. But when you have that level of excitement, that level of energy, um, I think that's a big compliment to the party and the direction we're going. And uh, But I will add that making sausage, you know, the old joke is making sausage isn't pretty, but most folks like sausage. It, it gets a, a little bit cumbersome to have that many opinions, but I'm excited about that much excitement. If somebody wanted to become a candidate on the floor, uh, just let, let's just say, um, uh, I don't know, Dick DeVos or somebody said, hey, I want to be a candidate on the floor. Is there any possible way that could happen? No one would nominate him. Well, let's, all right, let's, let's do somebody popular. Um, I don't know. Somebody nominates Kyle from the floor. <laughs> I wouldn't be present, but anyway, yeah, is that possible? Yeah, floor floor uh, floor nominations are are allowed in the rules. Yes. All right, but they would need support, of course. I, who knows? I don't know. Uh, the couple of candidates are very very popular. Uh, but of course, former President Trump has endorsed one of them. I understand that Kerry Lake Lake will be there from Arizona. There's a there's a lot of of uh, national focus on this convention. Who's Carrie Lake backing? I, to be honest with you, I've not paid attention. I, I've tried to steer away from that while I helped put the rules together. I didn't think that was in my best, I didn't think that was in the best interest of the delegation for me to take a position or point at this person or that person. Have you heard anything on U.S. Senate, Mike? Who are you hearing is, is making rumblings? You would know. You know, I, I'm hearing names, but they're, listen, they're, some of the names are the obvious considerations. Peter Meyer, I think, is considering a run. I don't know that for a fact, but that's what I'm hearing. Tudor Dixon is considering a run. I don't know that for a fact, but that's what I'm hearing. Um, I, I, I know some people have yelled back at, uh, at former Congressman uh, uh, Pete Hoekstra, whether he's a consideration or not. I, I don't know what they're thinking is I hear a lot of names, but part of the problem that we have on both sides of the aisle, in my humble opinion, is the echo chamber of the uh, social media. So somebody has an idea and they spread it around and before long, it isn't somebody's idea, it's fact. And that, but that doesn't make it fact. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of excitement, um, a lot we can look forward to. But you know, I'm curious, you know, what are you most most excited for? Uh, listen, I, I think activity is is really a big deal. Um, one of the things when we look at 2022, 
and people will ask me as a district chair, Mike, what happened to you guys in 2022? Um, I don't know that there was the excitement level that I would have liked to have seen. So we had a, a high voter turnout, but I, I, I don't think the Republicans turned out in fold. Um, I think there was a lot more that just waved off. And the result of that is people are going, wow, I thought we had this. Where did the big, you know, I believe we were going to have a, a big wave and that didn't happen. They stayed home because they were told there was a big wave. And that when that wave didn't materialize, now they've gotten up out of their chair saying, okay, now I've got to do something. And I love that activity. So I didn't like losing, but the product of losing is it woke a lot of people up. And I'm excited about that. All right. I think that's all the time that we've got here for you. I appreciate you coming on. Mike Hewitt, he is the third district chair of the Michigan Republican Party. Most importantly, he is, for now, the Rules Committee chair of the Michigan Republic, uh, Republican Party. Appreciate you being on the MERS podcast, sir. And if it expires, pray help from above, in the she's love, love, love. With a rebel, yeah, she's Joining us now on the podcast is Representative Dylan Wagella. He is a Democrat out of Garden City. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Well, did you think you'd be as famous as you are only a month into your tenure as a state representative? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I'd put it that way, um, but I, I will certainly say that uh, I guess everybody knows who I am now. Whether that's a good thing or not, I think remains to be seen. I, I just wanted to, I, I wanted to ask him right away because, you know, you and I have watched these these clusters on the floor where they're pressuring a lawmaker to get a specific vote. Uh, tell our listeners how intense it got. I mean, was it was it pretty hot? I mean, it's really hard. You know, honestly, it, it reminded me a little bit of, I guess, high school where, you know, you, there's peer pressure. Right. But this was like peer pressure on a, you know, times 10 on a like something I've never experienced before. And it was tough to get through, but we, we stood strong. Well, why don't we take our listeners back here uh, to this vote? We are talking about the conference report of House Bill 4001. The Democrats have 56 members, and the D Republicans, as far as we knew, were holding strong and saying they did not want to support this particular bill um, because they thought that this was going to stop an income tax rollback from happening, which it may indeed do. Uh, but you had a different issue with this bill. And why don't you tell our listeners what that is? If you look into the bills, you know, I was a co-sponsor on the bill. Um, I actually voted for the retirement tax when it passed the House 67 to 41 the first time. And I voted on the EITC also as a co-sponsor. And that passed the House 100 votes to eight. I have no issue with both of those. Obviously, I, I want to see both of those come into law. I even think it's a good thing to stop the income tax from, from coming back. Because really, what's that going to do? It's it's going to give a, a larger tax break to the wealthy rather than your average working person. And you know, maybe not a lot of people in Lansing are willing to say this, but I think taxes are good. Uh, taxes fund our schools, their roads, et cetera. The part of the bill that I was not a fan of was the diversion of the corporate income tax rate above $1.2 billion, uh, specifically the part where we were taking $500 million a year and putting it into the SOAR fund. So I think according to the estimates of uh, you know the fiscal agency, it was about would get almost to the 1.5 billion. I think they were looking at like 1.425 billion over the course of three years. And I, you know I think we have seen that those policies do not work and and they do not help our communities. 
Um, there's a ton of examples in, in the last few years alone that, you know, the SOAR fund, in, in my opinion, is not working. And it, what it amounts to is a corporate handout. Not to divert a little bit, but I was kind of curious about something a little different. You know, I, it came time when they found that 56 vote with with Representative Mueller that the bill kind of moved it moved pretty fast. And, you know, a lot of Republicans were upset about not being able to give a speech. And I know that you had one prepared as well. But I was curious, you know, how did you feel about that whole process when the bill was actually taken up? I mean, I think this is it's complicated because, you know, this what what the, what we did as Democrats, uh, not allowing people to speak to the bill has been done by Republicans in the past. This is not something completely uncommon. But I think personally and generally, I think it's good to have democratic discussion and democratic institutions. So I actually would have preferred to allow us to speak, even if there was dissent, because I think that's, you know, that's a key part of our of our democracy uh, in our republic. Um, and that, you know, I. I don't think it's bad to let people have differing opinions. And I think that's one of the strengths that we have. You know, I guess the Republican explanation was if they had been able to speak, then there might have been a shift and they might have lost that 56 vote. Do you you know, think that holds up at all? Was there a shaky last few? I mean, I I don't think that that holds up. I I think in general, people, by the time that we got to that point, had decided where they were going to vote. So take us back to uh, when they were counting votes. They needed your vote presumably in order to get to 56. And one of the things on the table was the retirement of the Inkster public school debt. Uh, Tell us about that because uh, that is something that's been hanging around for quite some time and would be a heck of a get to have the people of Inkster not have to pay off the remainder of that school debt, which is what, eight, $10 million. So a little historical context here. Uh, It's I think it's 12.7 million now. Um, everybody in my community and everybody in Lansing knows that this is my number one issue. This is what, you know, something that I have been talking about to every person in every room that I've been in. And I, I think it's a, it's a, something that I'm really happy that we have started to talk about. And this is something that in a democratic majority that should happen anyway, because what happened in 2013 closing of this district, demolishing the schools was a huge social injustice. Uh, I mean, we had special education students that were uh, lost their IEPs in the progress. We had student athletes that buses wouldn't come to Inkster to pick them up in time to play in sports. There was racial discrimination at some of the schools that people came into. Essentially, the history of Inkster Public Schools was was erased. And this was by Republicans at the time. And, you know, $12.7 million when we have a $9 billion surplus is just a tenth of a percent of the surplus. And it's really just a rounding error on the school aid budget. So, for a community whose household income is $32,000, I think that it makes a ton of sense for us to do this anyway. What I don't think makes sense, though, is to use that priority as a bargaining chip for me to give $1.5 billion in corporate handouts, because those policies also directly hurt my communities because you know we need things like water infrastructure, regular infrastructure, parks, schools. Um, like I said earlier, you know, taxes can be a source of good if we're using them in ways that are beneficial for people. So what kind of feedback have you gotten because you decided not to take that deal? Well, I, I think there's a lot of confusion going around. Um, and I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of work to to kind of talk about because there's not a good understanding of of the SOAR fund or really how much money we've given to corporations through subsidies in general. I think uh, through my research, what I've seen is, a, is about 18 and a half billion from the state uh, since 1975. 
And that number is probably low. And that's not even talking about, you know, all the money in 2008 from the federal government and, you know, through other times. So in terms of the feedback that I've gotten, I, I think it, it's kind of mixed. I think obviously there are residents who who want their uh, income or their property taxes to go down. But there's another part of this too, is that there was no way that that was going to be in this tax bill because that would be a school aid supplemental bill. So it was never really on the table for this moment. What we were talking about was that maybe an end of the year budget thing. And I think I still have faith that this is something that we can do because I, I think at the end of the day, this isn't about me. This isn't about my vote on that. It's about this community who deserves justice. I heard there were other things on the table that were being offered as well. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that nothing of substantial. My my big complaint at the time and, and always has been, I, I wanted a reduction in the number of dollars going to the SOAR fund. That was the only thing that maybe would have made me move um, because that's why I was making the stand. I know Lansing works where, where people operate by, you know, trading things for votes and et cetera. And, you know, I, I understand that's, that's what some people do for me. It was making that principled stand to say enough is enough corporations that have record billion dollar profits and million dollar profits. They don't need any more taxpayer money. Um, and, you know, I, I think moving forward, we've, we've got to find a better way to attract jobs here because, if you compare us with other states, which is hard to do, uh, you know, states that are nearby that have higher corporate income tax rates than we do and give less in subsidies can have better economies than us. So my question is, what drives people here? And I, I think it's talent. And you you can't attract talent without good schools, roads, and infrastructure. Are you at all concerned, having walked away from uh, Speaker Tate and the governor on this vote, will, will you be able to work with them going forward? Or are you at all concerned about your relationship with them? Uh, that's a good question. And I, again, I'm new to this, so I, I think it remains to be seen. But for me, I am more than willing to work with anybody. And I, I think we're going to need to. We have a one vote majority. I think Democrats are united on most things. I think I'll be voting with the Democratic caucus probably for, you know, the almost the remainder of this time, you know, except in times when we have SOAR. But I, I believe that, you know, we will reunite, we will work together, and we will get good things done for Michigan. Because pretty soon, in my opinion, we're going to start looking at some more uh, actual democratic values. The argument for the SOAR fund is that if we didn't have this tool, that these projects would go somewhere else. So, for instance, this Ford announcement over by Marshall. If we didn't have a little bit of state sweetener in here, we wouldn't have gotten that particular project, which is going to generate thousands of jobs and millions of dollars of economic development. Do you disagree that that's the case? I think there's a lot of nuance in this discussion. I mean, okay, so I'll just bring up a couple couple of examples. Uh, we gave Ford $100 million uh, a couple of years ago or last year, and they ended up cutting 3,000 jobs, right? And the jobs they cut were white-collar jobs, and the agreement said that they could not call, cut blue-collar jobs, basically. So we essentially gave a multi-billion dollar corporation, a $100 million tax break, and they ended up cutting jobs anyway. Um, another one is that The Guardian had a report recently looking at when we gave GM about a billion dollars in incentives. And what they found was we were giving about $310,000 per job. And by their estimates, the best case scenario was in 20 years, we would get about $100,000 of tax revenue for each job. Meaning that that you know simple math suggests that that's not a deal that works for taxpayers. Um, and there's a ton of examples, uh, you know, across the country. You could look at Foxconn in Wisconsin, and you know, last year we gave two billion dollars in corporate incentives for what I could count almost thirteen thousand jobs at one hundred and fifty-one 
thousand dollars a job. I, I I think I question that this is the most effective way to make economic change and that it will even see an ROI on it. I guess, you know, my follow-up is it seems like you have, you know, very strong feelings about the SOAR fund, its intended purpose, and some of the, the execution points. You know, are there other things that you think may come up in the future, either, you know, through Governor Whitmer or the Democratic caucus that you also, you know, feel as strongly on? Um, no, I mean, I think that most of the things that we will we will bring up, I will I will most likely be in supporting of. Um I, I think that, you know, there might be some things that I would like to see us start to talk about and start to do that maybe everybody else might not be so thrilled about. And, you know, I don't not a big fan of labels, but I, I certainly fall into the progressive camp, I think, of the Democratic Party uh, that. So I, I think it will be interesting to see how how far we go and how fast I'm somebody who thinks that the people of Michigan are, are ready for some some real change and ready for Democrats to govern. And I want to see us keep pushing forward. How much of a cold shoulder do you feel like you received from your House Democratic colleagues during this process? I, you know, I, I think it, it depends on the person. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, we're a team. So I think at the end of the day, we're going to come together. I think we'll maybe get a better sense of that this week. And I think sometimes things take time because this was a tough situation. And, you know, I think people at the end of the day will will respect the fact that, you know, I, I just stood up for what I believe in. And that doesn't mean the decision that what other people made was wrong, right? It just means that we disagree. And I think there has to be room for that in our caucus and there has to be room for that in Lansing in general. So in the end here, we did have Mike Mueller go ahead and vote yes on this. So it did get 56 votes. Was it a surprise when that vote went up on the board? Did you know that they had that Republican vote in the pocket? I mean, I, I had a good feeling because I, I was very clear and transparent in, in how I was going to vote. So I, I would have been surprised for us to bring a vote up that we didn't have the votes for. So is there any circumstance by which you would have been a yes vote on this? Yeah, as I mentioned, I you know I I, I for I made several attempts to get the SOAR number reduced. I, I think one of the problems was uh, after the bill had already come out of conference, you cannot amend the bill, so we would have had to essentially kill the bill and then bring it back forward or send it back to conference somehow. And I, I'm not even sure how you how you do that procedurally, but I, I was I was willing to move on that. Um, and I, you know, but we never got there. So it was, it was an attempt at negotiating and, and I understand not making the move on their end on that part. So if they would have sent the bill back, maybe reduce that number down from 500 to 200, 300, then you feel like point made uh, because they ended up having it anyway. I mean, they had the votes. This was going to be part of it anyway. Um, so I, you know, is this the hill to die on? I guess is the question to ask you. That is a good question. I, I think, you know, if you add up the numbers of of what we've done in in the first couple of weeks, right? We've 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 now given, I believe, one of the largest, if not the largest, tax cuts in history. And I suspect uh we might not be done with the SOAR fund looking at just recent reporting. So assuming that, you know, the $800 million that there was a discussion about goes forward in the future, this will also I think be one of the largest, if not the largest corporate handouts in Michigan history. So I, I do think that there is, a, this is a time and it's unfortunate that it's so early in my term that I have to make a stand like this. But I, I do believe, you know, we're starting to talk about this in more detail because of that. So I do think that this was, you know, maybe not the best personal strategic political move, but I think one that's good for Michigan. So what you're saying is you're not in favor of additional, you know, sort funding. You will not be a yes vote on the 800 million. Yeah, I will not. And I'm sure that that's no secret to anybody.
Moving on to another subject, if I could. Obviously, we're going to have a, an open U.S. Senate seat coming up in 24. Who would you be really excited to see run? That's a good question. And I, honestly, I think I'm going to defer my answer on that one. I, I, I'm not sure yet. I, I think it'll... I, I want to see who decides to run and then from there, see, see what their platform is going to be and, and what they're looking for uh, in that seat. I, I think it'll be interesting, though, to see to see what happens. And are you in the camp where you'd like to see Joe Biden run for reelection or would you like to see some new blood in there? I think like I think Joe Biden, if he wants to run, that he should run. I, and I, I think he's been this is, is going to be strange coming out of my mouth because I wasn't sure this was going to be the case, but he's probably been one of the most progressive presidents that we've had in office in, in, in history. And I think that he's made some really good moves. Uh, and I mean, he had a great state of the union address. I, I hope we can get some of those things done. I know we don't have the house anymore, so I, I'm going to hold out some hope on that. But uh, I think Joe Biden's been doing a really good job. And I mean, obviously everybody uh, ha you can have complaints or, or whatever, but I think, I would, I'd like to see him run again if he's willing to. If not, we should have a probably pretty interesting primary. You were probably pretty proud of him standing up to the Republicans who were hackling him about the uh, trying to eliminate uh, entitlements in Medicaid. Absolutely. All right. Representative Dylan Wagella, thank you so much for joining us on the Murders Monday podcast. Thank you, and thanks for having me on, and uh, I hope you all have a wonderful day. Don't act like you forgot. Bitch, better have my mom. Joining us now for the podcast is Budget Director Chris Harkins. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Glad to be here, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Chris Harkins is also known, John, as one having one of the best voices in state government. That's one of the reasons we had him on. I know. For, we should do our lead-in for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we should. We invite him in just to do the lead-in for the podcast. I think Resh has yeah. already done that for his cold oatmeal. It's true. It, it has happened. I, yeah. I, think, I think he's doing that. Well, let's talk about the budget. One of the first questions I had is how much of this we've got an ungodly amount of money that we're spending this year for sure how much of it is because we have to spend it we have to use it or lose it because of the feds there's a, a fair bit there kyle one of the supplementals that came alongside the budget recommendation i guess typically we we release one that's a general fund supplemental for the current year and we do a school aid we also added on top of that one specifically for american rescue plan dollars there's uh, between that supplemental, some of the money in the school aid bill, and then some of what the governor signed in PA1 just a couple weeks ago. There's about a billion dollars of ARP money left, maybe 950 or so. And so we, we uh, appropriated about 240 of that in PA1. So the rest, I think you'll find through that supplemental as well as in the school aid bill. So are we talking like a billion dollars, use it or lose it? Uh, roughly, yeah. So it's fair to say that probably the 25 budget isn't going to be as big as the 24 budget. This isn't like a growing, growing thing, right? Well, those are, uh, right, those are some federal resources. Those get uh, rolled into some of those gross numbers that we've got. So the, the numbers that include federal include uh, interdepartmental grants and restricted funds. Uh, our general fund is reducing year over year from 23 into 24 uh, with this budget recommendation. It is. It's it, actually getting smaller. It's, uh, it's a, a about 3% smaller. So I think you, I think you're right. You'll, you'll likely see uh, some degree of, of reduction um, year over year as we get into 25. 
because we do have a lot of one-time monies that are being appropriated in, in this 23 and 24 recommendation. Whenever uh, government moves a lot of resources at once, I'm not going to say waste, fraud, and abuse because it's kind of a tagline that's way overused, but there's always a concern that it's not as spent as efficiently as it could be. Are you confident that as we look at this amount of money moving through, uh, it's being spent to the best of, of the state's ability? John, it's a good question, and I, I think we are. Uh, a lot of what, what is being proposed are things that are um, maybe not new ideas, right? Some of them are, are places where we're purposefully setting money aside, right? So, so there's a billion dollars plus recommended just to go in the rainy day fund. I think that's a great example of a place of where we're putting money to make sure it is spent appropriately. Similarly, we've got a, a pool that the governor's recommending of $350 million of general fund. Uh, it's included in that GF supplemental that allows us or would allow us to be nimble and try to draw down additional federal resources. So there are certainly places where there are large spends, but they're large spends that are, are purposefully trying to be responsive to make sure we're spending money appropriately. And so I've, I feel pretty good about the way we've constructed this. How many supplementals are we going to need? Well, the, uh, the governor released five total supplementals alongside the budget. Um, that includes, for example, the, the COVID supplemental we talked about, or the ARP supplemental we talked about, an, an additional uh, COVID supplemental, so federal dollars that aren't um, discretionary but have some uh, federal resources, and then also the Natural Resources Trust Fund supplemental. So we, we essentially took care of a lot of those, those pieces all at one time um, just to try to clean the deck. We could have done them all in one, uh, but as you know, and you guys have followed closely, we've done a lot of those federal supplementals um, separately to purposefully try to keep them from becoming part of the ongoing conversation. And so we've, we've purposefully set those aside as a, as a separate supplemental recommendation. The legislature can clearly handle those however they'd like as they go forward. You had talked about during the budget presentation, the moving around of money uh, in the general fund to a different fund in order for money to go to SOAR, the Strategic Outreach and Attraction Reserve Fund, this uh, big pot of money that goes toward big dollar projects that uh, being used for things like Ford and, and such. It, but that money now, it, is it fair to say that instead of going to SOAR, it's actually going to end up going to what it looks like these rebates are, these uh, $180 checks, presuming the Senate signs off and everything happens there? Yeah, that's, a, that's an astute question, Kyle. Uh, right, the way the governor had built the budget was that there would be a large deposit into SOAR uh, one time and then some ongoing deposits into SOAR as, as we go forward. And, and instead, in conversation with legislative leadership, there's been a real focus on trying to use dollars to, uh, to get back immediately into people's pockets with a, a rebate instead. So what is the state of SOAR? Can you tell us how big it is and how big it could be? Well, right now there's about uh, there's a little over two hundred million dollars in the SOAR fund presently. Um, just a few weeks ago, PA one included one hundred and fifty million dollars uh, new deposit, and there was roughly sixty million dollars there right now. Those are those are unobligated dollars. Then, of course, we've got a few projects that are reliant on um, uh, legislative transfer process already. Um, so it, it could continue to grow. I know that's a conversation we need to have with the legislature, though, as we figure out what economic development looks like in the state and, and, uh, and how it should look as we continue to go forward. 
There's $500 million, though, in 4001 that goes to the SOAR fund, right? Yep. So that would boost it up to $700 million. It, it could. So the, the way that that bill is constructed, uh, and, and it mirrors pretty closely the initial governor's recommendation, would be that any corporate income tax collections over $1.2 billion would first go to support housing and community development. And then the next $50 million goes to placemaking. And then that up to the next $500 million would go would go into a SOAR deposit. So I think you, you can see there's a very purposeful allocation there that as we're hopeful that we're able to continue to attract some large-scale developments, we know we also have need for uh, housing and we know we've got need for uh, community building and for some um, replacement of, of vacant lots and, and improvements. And so you see a lot of that same dedication connected to some of these investments to um, to grow the economy. How will the housing and the placemaking work? Is that just going to go through an existing program? Is that How's it going to work? Right. So the, the money into housing and community development goes into a, an actual fund. Uh, and that fund, John, is governed by statute. So there's a lot of... Um, existing guardrails and spend um, requirements around those dollars. And then similarly, the, the that next 50 for placemaking is intended to go into the RAP fund, uh, revitalization and placemaking over at um, the METC. And so I think that's that's where you'll see how those dollars get, get governed, if you will. Okay. The $1.2 billion then for corporate income tax, how much does that usually collect? Well, it's a fairly new tax. It's been up and down a bit in the, um, those first few years. But for example, in fiscal 22, I think we're anticipating that that'll close over $2.2 billion. So oh. there'll be plenty of resources within that fund. We're projecting uh, for fiscal 23, for fiscal 24 and 25, that we'd be uh, very close, if not uh, meeting that kind of $600 million over the 1.2, we'd be able to allocate to these three resources. The corporate income tax, is that the one Snyder created? Uh, I believe that, that was a 2012. Yeah, bill. okay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the 6% yeah. on corporations. Okay. Not specifically about the budget, but I always like to ask the budget guys, what, what keeps them awake at night? Is there anything keeping you awake right now? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of t a lot of talk about potential recession, and right now all of our um, economists are acknowledging that there's a there's a likelihood of a mild recession coming. Um, I think that's that's kind of new for a lot of folks. Uh, these last several years have been so um, so strong, even though we we weren't really anticipating that to start. Um, so that kind of change is a little concerning. I think again we've we've built up reserves. We've got a responsible budget in place today. I think there's time before we get to the May conference and when we hopefully finalize the budget soon thereafter. There's time for us to make adjustments still, so I'm not I'm not overly worried about that. But that's that's a concern as we as we just think mm -hmm. about things going forward. And and frankly, it's to try to get the try to get the budget done early on time. Uh, you know that kind of end of May, early June, July timeline. Uh, creeps up real fast and so i think that that keeps me up a little bit too there's a limit to how much we can have in the rainy day fund isn't there there is kyle and i should know offhand what that maximum amount is right now we're not we're not close to hitting that if we were able to put in the the 200 million that we suggested as part of the exec rec 
Uh, by the end of 24, we would project that we'd be just shy of $2 billion in the rainy day fund, which is a, which would be really strong for us considering it, it wasn't all too long ago. We were down to essentially $0 in that fund. So it's been really good to see it populated. And then the new fund for school aid that's recommended would be a, a kind of a separate BSF for school aid and that we'd be putting $900 million into that just to start. The Republicans make a lot of hay about paying down long-term debt. Are we putting them as much into long-term debt as we possibly could? And it, what is the and why wouldn't you put as much as you could as you possibly could into long-term debt? Well, we're doing a lot to put into long-term debt. I think I think one of the areas that we've really excelled these last several years is to continue to pay down things like MIPSers. And we are meeting that statutory obligation to pay down MIPSers. I think what's what's sometimes forgotten is just how much work was done uh, both in statute and, and in these last several years to get us onto a really strong path to continue to pay down those debts. And so, and we're doing that. We're doing it right on schedule. We're doing it um, as we've agreed to be doing. And it, it's a good path. Um, and it's one that that is predictable. We we're we're following those things, and and we're we're hitting the mark. So I think that that's that's the right approach for us as we continue to go forward. Because we could always do more. I mean, we could we could pay a couple of years. You know, we do an extra mortgage payment, you and can, then we and then we wouldn't have to pay do more. That's true, Kyle. You can always do more. But again, it's where <laughs> you have to you have to compare those to other priorities. And sometimes, you know, one of the other areas that we we have talked about, and the governor did even in the current year budget, is we're we're also doing some spending to um, to work on deferred maintenance and and improve IT projects. You know, those are other things that are along those same lines of paying down liabilities you've got to, you've also got to pay for some of the things that have had deferred maintenance on them over time and while we've got some one-time resources it's a good time to make sure that the roofs are not leaking and that uh that we continue to improve the the condition in in facilities and chris does, does the state's borrowing cost fluctuate like the rest of our borrowing costs fluctuates with recent fed adjustments it does a are bit, they pretty well fixed it, it does a bit john and it, it also it, much like any other state or municipality, it, it fluctuates depending on credit ratings. This is where both the treasurer and I um, are, were so excited when, when we saw an increase in our, our state credit rating this past year from Fitch, uh, because again, it, it shows good long-term uh, commitment to, to fiscal responsibility that they're seeing from this administration and that they expect to continue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the ins and outs of that, John, are probably a question you could, you could have the treasurer talk about for a full podcast. I think she'd be excited to do it. Uh, it's, it's not exactly my area of expertise, but I know she's, she'd love to do it. <laughs> I'm sure. But it is more expensive right now to borrow than it was two years ago. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and it's also a great reason. You know, we we were fortunate that the governor uh, led so early on making some um, decisions around bonding to to try to get uh, roads in better condition. We were able to secure some some better interest rates and and uh, rather just better rates around some bonds uh, early on, and so it's allowed us to um, to maybe precede some of the difficulty that you'd find uh, going to bond this very minute. How many staff people are involved in crafting this budget proposal? Oh, there's a lot. Uh, on on our team, uh, the budget development team, there's a, a good 35 or so here in the budget office. Um, and then, of course, we've got we've got input from all over um, 
state government, the, the departments. We work with every department, work with their uh, leadership as well as their individual budget staff. Obviously, we work as well with the, the governor's office. So there's, there's hundreds of people um, as we go through this whole process who help to develop uh, what you see the governor delivered last week. When did you start crafting this thing? We sent out directions to um, state agencies back in September. Okay. And and that's a good timeline. We're, that's a good way to be able to do that. I think these last several years, getting the budget done in September shortens that timeline that we get to begin preparation. And so um, having things done as we did last year in June allowed us to get to kind of more of a traditional timeline where we could kick off in September leading into the into the next fiscal year. I saw in the, uh, the governor's recommendation that there was a two-year budget that it, in the actual budget bill there was uh, there was a column for 24 and there was a column for 25 i don't remember seeing that before yeah it's a change um with the previous administration uh that and, and i believe you also find that update in the dmb act that the administration is supposed to provide a projected second okay. year um that has these last several years uh and even under the prior administration the legislature um i think uh might say thank you and uh, disregard that second year in most cases, but uh, it allows us to also point out where there are places where we know there there may be some growth or there's um, uh, baseline adjustments that might be necessary, but that second year is advisory. So I've just missed it then, is what you're saying. I think so, yeah. Okay, it's, all right. So I just have been introduced that way. Okay. Yeah, it's introduced that way each year from at least from our side, uh, the legislature as they are uh, certainly able to do every year. It's their decision on how they introduce that part as they go forward. All right, Chris Harkins, he is the state budget director. Thank you for coming over to MERS World Headquarters and uh, checking out the, uh, the studio here. I'm happy to be here, Kyle. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and that's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to Dylan Wagella for coming in and uh, chatting with us. And then also Mike Hewitt, the third congressional district chair, and the budget director, Chris Harkins. Also, thanks to our team, John Rurink, Samantha Schreiber, and Danielle James. Post-production of the Murders Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio in Okemos. And as always, special thanks to AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. Until next week, I'm Kyle Malin. Take care.